At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 480th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is experimenting with living off existing food sources for difficult times. We're talking with returning guest Kevin Espiritu about his Apocalypse Grow Survival Challenge. That's an interesting name. His business, Epic Gardening, began as a way for Kevin to present gardening information in a more modern, updated way to friends and family. First came the website, followed by YouTube, a daily podcast, and finally his social media presence on Instagram and Facebook. Kevin is the author of Field Guide to Urban Gardening from our friends at Quarto Publishing. And like me, Kevin was a presenter on the recent Superfood Summit and loves to share his gardening knowledge. Kevin, we got to meet you in podcast episode 473 just last month. Welcome back to the show. Are you ready to rock apocalypse? I'm ready to rock. Awesome. So last time we chatted, we kind of planted the seeds for this apocalypse grow survival challenge. Tell me how it's unfolded. Yeah, so it is now a few weeks after the challenge. So I guess I'm back to quote unquote normal now, but the challenge definitely shifted my perspective of what normal even meant, right? Yeah. So I guess for for people who don't know about it, which is probably most people, it was basically cooked up via my friends and I. We were talking about, you know, what would happen if a meteor hit the earth? What would happen if all these classic apocalypse scenarios that we see in movies, and both of them are pretty fit, athletic people. And I am, let's just say I'm a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And so I said, you know what? Even though you guys could outrun me or you might outfight me, you still have to keep me because I'm the only one of us that actually knows how to grow food past the point of just scavenging around in the apocalypse, right? Right. And so they, they admitted that that was the truth. And then as I went home that day, I said, you know what? What would actually happen if I had to do this in three months? What if this actually happened? We got the word and the world was going to end or something like that. And and how would I actually do it given the space that I'm living in? And, and for those of you who don't know the space I'm growing in, it's it's about 150 to 250 square feet, depending on what methods I'm using at the time, which is not a lot of space. Very urban, right? Right. And so I gave myself 90 days of lead time and I said, okay, let's see what I can do. And the rules were as follows. I could only eat for a month and this was June 1st to 30th could only eat what I was able to grow, fish, forage, or barter for. And if I bartered, I would have to barter with people who had grown or produced the item that they were bartering for. 
So I couldn't go barter for like a Domino's pizza, which would defeat <laughs> the purpose of the challenge. Right. And uh, I had to barter at a fair market value or at an agreed upon value. I couldn't use sort of the challenge as a way to say, hey, here's one potato. Can I please have three dozen eggs, right? Mm-hmm. So I tried to give myself as, as stringent rules as possible. The only things I allowed myself were salt and one bottle of olive oil for the challenge. That's it. And so that was the starting point. And that is kind of why we're here today is, is the completion of that challenge. And okay, so let's just start at the end. How did it go? It went, it went, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely went. No, it, it, it was very difficult the first week or so because what I didn't realize is that I was coming off of, sounds like I was on a drug, but I guess some might say it, it is a drug of sorts, sugar, right? Oh, yeah. Caffeine, any sort of red meat, any sort of dairy, and any sort of bread product or gluten, right? All at the exact same time, which is by far the most drastic dietary change I've ever made in my life to go from all of those to none of those or in varying amounts. And so the, the first few days were really mentally rough because I wasn't eating a lot of calories and I was coming off of all of those. So my energy was all over the place. My brain didn't feel like it was working very well. Even though I was hydrating and trying to get as much sleep as possible, it just like really what the pieces really weren't there. After the first five days, though, I kind of came to some sort of new normal, although my energy was still a little bit lower. And then I was able to actually settle in and get into the mode of, okay, how am I actually going to live for this month? Well, what I noticed in the past, I, I drink a fair amount of caffeinated tea. And what I've noticed in the past is when I come off of it, there's a withdrawal time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I'm someone who I don't really sense when I drink caffeine. I don't get amped up. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, okay, maybe I just don't react too strongly to caffeine or maybe my tolerance is somewhat high. I don't really know. And it turns out that I, I actually had a headache for three to five-ish days in a light way yeah. at the beginning of the challenge. And of course, I can't say that's all caffeine. It could be the multitude of things that I was I was not doing. But I, I would imagine that at least a good chunk of it was just not having my morning cup of coffee. Right. Well, and you can get coffee in San Diego County. It's true. It's true. And actually, in a barter, halfway through the month, I had my first cup of coffee. I was able to barter with someone who was a coffee roaster who had leftovers from a tasting. And so I bartered with them, and I actually had, I finally added coffee back to the diet. But it was, a, it was about two, two and a half weeks without it. Wow. Yeah. So you said one of the rules was that you could actually fish. Did you go fishing? I did, yeah, yeah. So fishing was the second staple to my diet. So obviously the things that I grew, and, and we can talk about that, were the, the primary staple. But fishing, since I live in San Diego and I live coastal near the ocean, I had to bone up on my fishing. So in the months before the challenge, I connected with a local fisherman who's kind of like a legend here in San Diego they call him the coach. That's that's his name, the coach. Uh-huh. And I'll tell you one thing. I, I went out fishing with this guy, and I fished as a kid, but I, I wasn't really ever hooked by it, and I didn't have the, the practical skills. So I went out fishing with him a couple times just to practice and immediately was catching 10 times more fish in a night than I ever had in my life. Wow. And so I, I got encouraged. I was like, okay, actually, this is a skill set that I can learn and get better at, which which is kind of how my mind works. If, as, as soon as I know I can get better, I'm, I'm hooked and I'm in. And so, yeah, fishing ended up being a staple of protein because besides eggs, that was really the only protein and fat 
I was able to consume because you can't grow. There's not very many plants you can grow with a 90 day lead time mm-hmm. that are high in either of those, except for perhaps beans. And I did grow a lot of beans. The only other interesting thing, Greg, was here in California, there's a species of fish called the grunion. Uh-huh. And that's a, that's a species of fish that is one of the few that breeds out of water. So in June, there were two four day periods where the grunion were running, which is what they the call grunion it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They're spawning run, which a lot of people in, in California go and see as a kid and just kind of watch it. But it's a four-day period. They do it time to the moon. And what happened was the first day is kind of light, and then days two and three are really insane. And so there are very specific rules on on it, when and how and why you can take these grunion. June is one of their off months, so most of their spawning has already happened. So regulations-wise, it's okay to take them. And then you have to only take them with your hands. You can't take any more than you would use. You can't waste the fish, et cetera. So I followed all those rules, and I was running around at midnight for a couple nights in a row, grabbing as many of these as I could. Could, and then staying up really late and processing them because I was like, you know what? I might be good at fishing, but it's a lot easier to just walk on the beach and pick a fish up <laughs> right. and, and catch it, even if there's tons of fish in the ocean. So that was a, a really big blessing on the challenge, and it gave me a ton of protein. Wow. And how big are grunions? They are, man, they're, they're no longer than about four to five inches and maybe an inch tall. So they're very small. So you need a lot of them to even make it worth it. So that was a fair amount of work. That was a fair amount of work. Yeah. The, the, the biggest day was the third day for me and I got quite a few. And I think I got back to my house. I, I left for the beach at 10 p.m. I got back to my house at 1 a.m. and I went to bed at 4 a.m. because it took that long to, to process all of those. And I had also caught some other fish from the pier. Uh-huh. And so it was just a, it was a big day, but I knew, okay, I can sleep in tomorrow. If I've, if I've processed all of this, I have enough protein for a week or more, which was a massive, massive success. And so I was like, okay, I'll pay the price of basically pulling an all-nighter right now and, and fishing. Wow. All right. So that was your second staple. Your first staple was? Yeah, my first staple was plants, right? So yep. that's kind of the, the mainstay of the challenge was, can I grow enough food? And of course, 150, 250 square feet with 90-day lead time is hard because there's not a lot of stockpiling you can do. There's not a lot of space and conditions have to be right. You have to kind of nail everything. You can't really have a pest or disease problem because you can't really sacrifice any yield out of that space. And so I decided I have to grow calories. I don't have a choice. It would have been nice to grow a bunch of different fruits and tomatoes and peppers, but those don't have a lot of caloric density. I guess perhaps the fruits do, but those take a bit longer to grow on average. So I said, okay, well, I've now slimmed it down to either sweet potatoes or or potatoes. And sweet potatoes are a longer growing crop than I would have liked. So then it became obvious that the choice was growing potatoes. So what I did is I went to a feed store and bought, I think, 25 pounds of seed potatoes, about one third of white, one third of red, and one third of yellow. So my yellow was a Yukon gold, my red was a Norland potato, and my white was a Warba potato. And I planted those in five different methods. So I used grow back like those felt pot, smart pot type of bags, which are wonderful. And I used raised beds. So I just planted them directly in raised beds, about a three foot by four foot raised bed. And I put a potato in per square foot, kind of testing out the Mel Bartholomew-esque square foot gardening method for potatoes, which I hadn't tried before. Uh I did in-ground potatoes in two different ways. So I I had a friend's terrace that I was able to use for maybe 15-ish seed potatoes. 
I did those without hilling them, without burying them too deep, without fertilizing them. And I only used the natural rainfall of the spring to water them. So it was a true zero work potato. And then I also did an in-ground style potato where you do it in rows and you hill it and you use some straw mulch and it's a little bit more intensive, right? So I tried three to five different growing methods with all of them because I really wanted to not put all my eggs in one basket and make sure that I had enough yield to, to at least give me a shot. And so fortunately, that really did work. And, and we can talk a little bit if you want about the, the methods I found to be most effective. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So of the two container methods, I was doing five-gallon buckets and the grow bags. The grow bags beat the five-gallon buckets. Yeah. And I think that's because of the porosity of the medium of mm-hmm. the, you know, the the felt yep. or the whatever the material is called. And the grow, yeah. So the five-gallon buckets, also the thing with the five-gallon buckets is you can't give them as much access to sun as you might like because you can't fold the bucket. The sun will only go in when it's overhead, right? Until it starts to grow out of the bucket. Oh. Whereas with a with a felt pot, you can just bend the sides oh, down. Yeah. And so you can get perfect access to sun, and then you can just slowly roll it up as the bag starts to fill up, which means that you're just going to get quicker growth, right? More sun, more growth. Yep. So hold um, on, before you go past that, though, you need to explain that a little bit more. Sure. Think about it. So if you have a five-gallon bucket and you've got your potatoes, the way a potato grows is it's a seed potato that has a little sprout. And so you bury it actually pretty low in a pot before you start to then hill it up with more soil. And you're waiting for that sprout to keep growing because the, the space between the seed potato and the top of the potato shoot is where all those new potatoes are going to develop. And so if you're growing in a five-gallon bucket, when the sun is rising and setting, it's it's coming into the bucket at an angle. Yep. So it's not getting as much light as it would want versus a felt pot where that same thing would be true except for the sides of the felt pot or the smart pot are bendy. You can fold them over. So you can just say, okay, when it's low and I haven't hilled the potato up, I'm just going to bend and fold the felt pot over so that the sun's hitting it in the morning and the night and it's getting actually full sun, which is what potatoes require. Yeah, and then the, the next step is as it grows, you add more soil? Exactly. So that's what I tried in in both of those. And it works pretty well. The hilling method works pretty well. But the real big surprise is that the raised bed potatoes that I hilled up did pretty well. But the one at my friend's house that I did nothing to did (laughs) drastically better than everything else. Wow. The only reason I can think of for that is that, first of all, I grew only the Norland Reds in there, which was the most prolific variety. So that could have something to do with it. But also, I think just simply setting and forgetting and allowing the potato to kind of go a little crazy Mm -hmm. worked really, really well. As long as, I mean, you can't not water it at all and have no rainfall. That would not really work out. But I mean, potatoes are a pioneer crop and, and they're often planted in not the best soil, which there wasn't the best soil at that terrace. And, and they just kind of go crazy. And so I pulled 25 pounds out of those 15 seed potatoes. And then the remaining methods wow. I used, I pulled the remainder of the 70 pounds. So another 45 pounds, right? So drastically more out of that raised bed terrace. So I think, Greg, if I do potatoes next year, what I'm going to end up doing is I'm not going to hill them at all. And I'm going to bury them twice as deep and I'm going to let them sprout a little bit longer before I bury them. And I think that should just solve it because it'll be way less work with the same or greater yield. So to me, that seems like a no brainer. No kidding. So did I just hear that maybe you're going to do this again in June of next year? Yeah, I think what I'll do, and a month was a really long time for me. 
So I think what I'll do is I'll do it in July and I'll do two weeks, the second two weeks of July, because I'm in zone 10B, right? And, and you're in a favorable zone for year-round growing, yep. but many, many gardeners aren't. And I wanted more people to participate. I, I definitely had a couple people participating along with me, but I had so many more say, this is an amazing idea, but I'd love to do it. I just can't because I'm in zone you know, 4A or 4B. I don't have anything in June ready to go. So I think what I'll do is next year, I'll, I'll cut the time in half and I'll do it in basically right now. It'll be June, July, sorry, July 15th to the 31st. Yeah. I just had a, a wicked epic idea. Give it to me. You should, not that I would should on you ever, but see how many people out in your podcast sphere want to jump on and do it with you. Or was that what you had in mind? Yeah, I did put it out on the podcast. So I had a couple of people join via the podcast, a, a few more via Instagram. And actually, it was really funny. Everyone who joined did quote unquote better than I did because they had more space, they had more access to, to resources, right. or they had chickens on their property. And so it was actually really motivating for me to see everyone else do it at a level that's a bit higher. And it motivates me for you know my plans as I build my urban homestead in the future. Awesome. Staple one was what you could grow. Staple number two was fish. Then there was something else. Right, right. The foraging, the foraging life, which I had nearly no experience in before I started this. So I was, I was swiftly trying to educate myself on California wild edibles mm-hmm. and found that in my area, I mean, we're in a desertified desert climate, right? So the foraging isn't as vibrant as, let's say, the Pacific Northwest or, or the Northeast, especially in the spring. But there's still some stuff that you can do. And so what I was able to forage for mostly were wild berries. Mulberries were in season at the time, and I was able to get a ton of those. We actually, there's an area of San Diego that used mulberry trees as landscaping. Oh, wow. And I think they probably really regretted that because <laughs> right? when the mulberries fall, I mean, I went, I would go out foraging for the mulberries at these local parks, and you just bring a big tarp and you shake the branches, and they all fall down like like dark purple rain, you know? And and it, they truly stain you. It's a, it's a very, very deep stain. And so all the, the sidewalks and the side streets were all stained with mulberry. So I'm pretty sure the city landscaping wonders why they made that choice. But for me, it was it was wonderful because I could go to these big trees that more or less no one knew were edible. And not only edible, but quite nutritious and quite delicious. I believe, mm-hmm. I could be wrong, that mulberries are more nutrient-dense than, than blueberries, I think. Either way... I didn't have any access to blueberries, so mulberries was was my game. And so I grabbed tons and tons of those. I was able to forage for another local ornamental landscaping tree around here is the loquat tree. Oh, yes. Which is, is really funny because not only is that not truly ornamental, it's an edible fruit tree, but it's extremely prolific oh, yes. and the fruits are really good. It's not one of those that you have to kind of convince yourself is inedible, you know? It's actually good. And so I'm fortunate enough to have one in my front yard, which was a source of maybe 10 to 15 pounds of loquats. Wow. And then I used the fallingfruit.org app, which is just a website that has a Google Maps overlay and people will map all the edibles in the area. So what I did then is I said, okay, well, loquats are really prolific right now and I better get as many as I can just in case. And so what I did is I mapped all the loquat trees then I ran around knocking on people's doors or knocking on a business's door if it was a you know a public place. I said, "Hey, you've got this crazy fruiting tree outside that I'm I'm guarantee you don't really care about, and it's going to start dropping the fruit. It's going to stay in the sidewalk. 
it's going to attract pests. Do you mind if I just come through and collect a bunch of it? And almost everyone was like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so I did that. And then that's a really annoying one to process because you have to cut it, slice it in half. You have to de-pit it. And there's more than one seed oftentimes. Yep, usually two or to, three. Yep. Yeah, usually two or three. And then you have to scrape out this little pith on the inside, or at least I'd like to slice off the bits of each ends because they're they're not that palatable. And then what I decided to do, because these were out of season, this, this was happening in May. So I was saving, right? Oh, yes. I had to, I had to dehydrate them. There was no other choice. And so I just spent hours and hours and hours dehydrating them. And it's so funny because as soon as you dehydrate, you realize how little food you actually made. I mean, the dehydration, <laughs> right? compression, yeah, it's crazy. It's like 15 pounds of loquats becomes less than a pound of, of dehydrated loquats just because of so much water content just leaves. But, you know, nutrient dense, calorically dense, which is what I needed. And so the, the foraging really, really helped me out, specifically those two plants. Nice. You kind of touched on wild foraging. Yeah, most of it was was wild foraging, at least the mulberries. I mean, I guess it depends on what you consider wild. Most of this was in a semi-urban environment, and it just was stuff that no one would have used, mm -hmm. and no one even does use, really, around my area. Isn't that crazy? We got all this food hanging on trees. I know. It's insane. And, and there's a couple other, actually, Greg, foraging opportunities. I, I found kumquats, which are honestly delicious. They're one mm -hmm. of my favorites. And kumquats actually became a staple because I was able to harvest a bumper crop of them from this plant that was just going absolutely insane. It was easily the biggest kumquat tree I'd ever seen. And I could have harvested forever and not even made a dent, like thousands. It was Kumqu insane. Kumquats are that way. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and so I made some kumquat juice, which was really, really tasty if you dilute it just a little bit because it can be kind of tart. But kumquats effectively are a delicacy to anyone who doesn't have them. And so I started using those as a barter oh, for things yes. that other people had. You know, Some of my friends from Instagram who live in San Diego said, hey, I have eggs. What can you give me for the eggs? And I said, uh, do you want some kumquats? And they were like, oh my God, I, I haven't ever really tasted one or I haven't had those in so long. And so I could give them a pound of kumquats and get two dozen eggs because they're a, a homesteader that has 12 chickens and they're getting, what, 10, 15 eggs a day, whatever. Yep. And so for them, eggs are uh, in abundance and, and kumquats are a scarcity. scarcity. And, and for me, it's the exact opposite. So the trades were completely fair and above board and also just we were both happier for it. Well, and I think that is in an apocalyptic situation and even in just a community food building situation, that is going to be one of the really important things that we do is that we develop relationships with people that have stuff that we don't have. And, yep. Yep. you know, when we create some kind of high value something like plant a, you know, plant a kumquat tree and trade. So how yeah. was how was the whole trading process for you? The trading process was actually really fun and it, it started to get out of hand because <laughs> I had a lot of people, I was covering this whole thing in my Instagram stories mostly. Mm -hmm. And I, I just had a lot of people kind of following along with the journey. And I think they saw me, my face get thin and they saw me be kind of loopy sometimes. And they were like, hey, do you need something? Can I help you? <laughs> <laughs> you look like you're struggling, you know? And a lot of people wanted to just send me stuff for free. And I was like, I can't take things for free. And I was getting towards the halfway point of the challenge. And I started to really lean into the bartering. And actually, we did some bartering by mail because not everyone is really around here. And I know that, of course, in the real apocalypse, the mail wouldn't work, probably. But 
for the purposes of the challenge, I thought it would be fun to connect with gardeners from around the country. So I did some bartering via mail and got things that I just really had no access to at all. And it was really funny to go to the post office and ship out five boxes of two to five pounds of potatoes each and just use the postal service for that purpose. It was just kind of a silly thing to do, Uh but uh, it felt really funny. And, and, Getting some barters from people around the country was was really satisfying and, and fulfilling. I got you know dried moringa, which is super nutrient dense. I, I got different types of teas, and and even someone even sent a bar of handmade soap, which wasn't really I was allowing myself to use normal washing products, but but still, from that point on, I then used the soap, right? Right. Really fun. And then in person bartering, kind of came to a head at my friend Ann's house. So she's Real Hens of Orange County on Instagram. She's a homesteader. She actually has a book out now about backyard chickens. Uh-huh. And so we all went up to her house for an apocalypse potluck. And all the people who were kind of participating in Southern California came and we had this insane epic meal. Everyone brought foraged, bartered, or or homegrown meals. Wow. Dishes. So we had this incredible potluck. And I just, you better believe I ate so much food because I was like, <laughs> I, could, I could fast tomorrow if right. I eat all this food today. <laughs> yeah. But we also all brought things to trade. So I brought a bunch of grunion up for Anne and she gave me two dozen eggs. And she even labels her eggs. She labels which hen laid it, which was kind of cool. On each egg, she actually writes it in pencil, which is was just a fun thing to know exactly mm-hmm. the hen that laid the egg. Yep. Got some garlic and yeah, that that was like just a really fulfilling bartering experience and and community which really became the tie for me is I was like you can't you can't be living on your own without community. It's pretty hard to do. I mean, you could totally go into the wilderness and give yourself time and and you could be self-sufficient, no doubt about it, but I guess the for me the question is would would you actually want to and I don't really think I would. Yeah. Well, and you know, if we're bumping up against the apocalyptic time, we're going to need everybody to be engaged. We're going to, you know, because if only 5% of the people have the food, then, you know, it just spirals down. But if yeah, we can, that would that'd be if, a bad scenario. <laughs> yeah, but if we can figure out how to have 95% of the people out there growing their own food, then it's, you know, there's this abundance of food out there and then we just figure it out. Yeah, exactly. I think that's... I think we're on the same page on that one, 100%. What was the hardest part? I mean, I have to be totally honest. The hardest part is simply remembering every day that I couldn't do the things that I normally did. And I wasn't eating the healthiest, I will have to admit, before the challenge. And so I was going into it with all these habits and patterns that might not have been the best for me, right? Going to the coffee shop, get a coffee. Oh, get a little cookie or a croissant, you know, grab a sandwich at lunch sometimes. So, you know, I cooked at home a decent amount, but leading up to that challenge, I really was kind of taking advantage of my last days of freedom, I guess you could call it. Uh And so the hardest part for me was leaning all the way back into cooking and trying to cook with a relatively limited amount of ingredients, right? Not a whole lot of seasoning, not a whole lot of variety in, in my total ingredients. So I had to get really creative in the kitchen. And then after that, it was simply the willpower to get past about day 10, I would say. After day 10, energy picked up, my motivation picked up, and mm-hmm. I was ready to kind of cruise through the rest of it. But the first 10 days, I think, just battling going back to the old way of living, I think was the hardest. Well, and it kind of makes sense, though, because if something did happen, you wouldn't have had time to really prep. No. So no. that's a little bit more realistic stepping into that it that way, I would think. I thought so, yeah. And I, I thought that 
you know, a lot of people were like, oh, you, you really weren't that prepared, right? And I was like, well, that's kind of the point. point the right, point exactly. The point wasn't to, you know, come up with this idea in 2016 and then in 2019 do it for a month because that'd be so easy. I would just grow a bunch of grains and potatoes and corn and things like that and process them into different things. And I would basically have a fully stocked pantry if I did it that way. And that wouldn't be a problem, you know, but to give myself 90 days, I mean, really the, the fastest potato you can grow is 90 day potato. And even then, if you leave it a couple days extra, a couple weeks extra, you can even plump them up a little bit more, get more yield. So I was like, mm, that's kind of the point is, is to see if I can really push the limits of this. Right. Wow. And the easiest part of it, if there is. Yeah. The easiest part of it, I think was how surprisingly easy it was to grow the potatoes. I hadn't ever grown them at that scale before. I mean, oh, yes. That was that was basically 85% of my whole garden. So I'm even suffering now. My garden is delayed because I, my potatoes came out June 1st, right? Mm-hmm. And so the stuff that normally would have been in my garden for the summer was not. And so I had to, I had to restart the garden. So I'm a little off schedule. But yeah, the potatoes are just such a – one of my favorite crops to grow now and, and one of the easier crops to grow. So I would say the growing side of it was actually the easiest part of the challenge. The fishing uh, surprisingly became a little easier because of the grunion run, but was a little harder. The, the foraging was a little harder. But it, overall, it was a little bit easier than I thought it would be. On a practical standpoint, the psychological aspects were harder. Yeah, wow, I can see that for sure. You spent the month of June 2019 in this apocalyptic challenge. What did it boil down to? What are your final thoughts on it? Yeah, the final thoughts were interesting because I started to realize how hard it would be to climb out of a bad scenario if you're not getting fed. That's kind of my big takeaways. I've worked with a couple of farmers in the past about the concepts of food deserts, right? Areas where there's just not fresh food access. Mm -hmm. And the people there sometimes are maybe not eating the highest quality food or they're using food stamps and and going to 7-Eleven, getting hot dogs or or whatever. Whatever is easy, right? Because they have enough problems as it is. Trying to go home and cook food is, is just a whole other thing. So I started thinking, especially the first five, 10 days, when my brain just really wasn't functioning, I was on low calories, low protein, low fat, just having a rough time. I was like, I'm in a pretty good spot in life, pretty fortunate person. And I am struggling right now to even formulate thoughts sometimes. How much harder would my life be? Like, let's say I grew up in a more disadvantaged position than I am now. How would I even climb out if I'm not even getting appropriate nutrition, right? And so that was one of my big takeaways that I, it gave me more true sympathy versus just empathy because I'd actually gone through it to be like, oh, this is how life is when you're really struggling for, for food, right? If you're below the poverty line and, and trying to eat nutritious food, if you're not feeding your brain and body with the things that it needs, how are you supposed to then use your brain and body to help yourself get out of a tough situation? So that was kind of my real big takeaway. And then my, my secondary, I guess, more lighthearted takeaway would be just the power of community, right? Because without the barters, it really would have been a much more boring and blasé challenge of me eating like potatoes and fish for a month, you know? Right. Wow. And was there one thing during this month that was a sparkle that when you saw it, it was like, yes, that's the reason I'm doing this. Yeah, there is. So there was a guy who messaged me on Instagram, actually. He's a 23 or 24-year-old kid. And I think he saw it just a day or two before the challenge started. And he said, I'm in. 
And I was like, oh, okay. I, I didn't really know anything about this guy. And then he, every single day, he, he would send me and say like, hey man, what's up? Here's what I'm eating today. Hope your day's going well. And he would send <laughs> nice. me his meals. And so, I mean, his meals were honestly way better than mine because he was a hunter, a fisherman, and he had a full homestead. Yep. And so he's eating like deer sausage with, you know, <laughs> full, <laughs> full vegetable spread. So in some ways it was a little discouraging, but at the same time to know someone else was literally doing the exact same thing every day was amazing. And then my friend, Anne, of course, was doing the same thing. She'd send me her meals and we would discuss and say, okay, well, what would you do in this situation with this barter? Do you think this is fair or Hey, do you have anything you want to trade? And so having a couple friends along with me day by day was actually kind of the bright spot in the challenge. Nice. Actually, one more thing, Greg, my cousin joined me on it the last two weeks. So Uh he didn't want to do the full month, but we did the grunion run together. And then he's more of a fisherman than a gardener, but I got him to throw a bunch of potatoes in and his came to maturity in in the 15th of June. Uh And so he joined me for the last two weeks too. So I had some family members doing it as well, which is pretty fun. Oh, nice. So you really gathered the troops, so to speak, and publicly did this as an experiment to educate people. Yeah, I mean, I was—I guess I would say I was educating myself via the public, which is kind of my 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 mantra. Uh-huh. Not being an expert, right, or, or sort of learning in public. But yeah, I mean, that's exactly the idea. Wow. Well, congratulations. This is uh, this is fun. I think we should let people know next year when you're getting ready to do it via a podcast. So we should have you back on the podcast in March or April to kind of prep people and see if we can get some people on board to do this. Yeah, for sure. I think next year I'd like to have at least 100 people doing the Apocalypse Challenge with me. It would be really fun. This is a really, really important thing to know. I think so. And, And actually, tell me what you think about this. I was thinking about having it be like more of a regular thing. Maybe if we came up with some idea for people to do this for a weekend every month, Right to have oh, that, yeah. to have that sensibility of hey, this is 100% self-sourced weekend, and we're doing it the third week of every month. Whatever, you know. Yes, I think that would just be a really cool idea to get it to be more regular. And actually, what if you could actually change? You know, how we say, oh, if 10 people, 10% of people grew their own food, the world would change, or, or 20%. What if you had everyone on the planet, which of course is a lofty goal. <laughs> Why not eating 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 one day's worth of food every week that they produced? Even that would make a massive, massive dent in the food system. That would make a massive dent. Plus, it right? exercises the muscle for mm-hmm. people to actually grow their own food. Exactly, and it it just it's just more fun, I think, to make it into that sort of game. Like, hey, can you actually do this? How would you do it? You know, maybe even have competitions of you can make the most delicious meal or the most nutritious meal, whatever. You know, we should team up our two podcasts. We should team up and and do this next year because this is uh, this really goes to the core of what I'm after as well. And that's to get people thinking about where their food comes from, because if there was even just a power outage, were you in San Diego in uh, 2014? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There was a, a countywide power outage in September, was there not? There was. I remember that. It was for a while, too. Yeah, it was like three days. And uh, Scott Murray, a real good friend of mine, lives up in Vista, California. And it became a little bit challenging. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I remember people were trying to get ice for their freezers or insulating everything and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So we're not talking end of the world apocalypse stuff. We're just talking you know, there's a trucker strike or a power outage or, you know, what happened here in Phoenix a few years ago was that one of the 
gas, the main gasoline pipeline coming into Phoenix broke down and we were running into gas shortages. And it's, you know, it's, so this is just stuff that people need to be prepared for. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's it's shocking to think of how fragile the system actually is. And you just don't think about it because <laughs> right? it, it oftentimes doesn't break. Yes, exactly. Well, yeah. and, and our food system, in my humble opinion, is one of the most fragile systems we have set up on the planet. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you on that. It's beautiful the way it's set up. Because it's a just-in-time food system, which makes it, you know, it delivers three days worth of food into every city every day. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if Yeah, but go three days. What do yep. they say? Like the, the world's nine meals away from a global revolt or something like that? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Well, I love what you're up to. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on again. Absolutely. We're going to do this again. So- I'm going to shift on you. And as a returning guest, I like to ask if you have any vivid childhood memories associated with food. Yeah, I think mo- I think most of my childhood memories are are me gorging on Filipino food that my grandpa would make. So uh-huh. he was a he was a Navy chef for the the larger ships in the Navy. So he wow. brought his Filipino cuisine into that. And, and then, of, of course, growing up as a kid, I would, I grew up five minutes away from my grandparents' house. Mm-hmm. So I could run up there and do what do whatever I wanted anytime. And so he would he would make torta, which was it's hard to describe exactly what it is because I'm more familiar, of course, now with like a Mexican torta, which is more of a sandwich. Uh-huh. But this was eggs, potatoes, carrots, and spices and, and things like that that would almost be in like a flat open face omelet, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. I mean it was just yeah, it was so delicious. And something about the way he made it, because he's taught me how to make it, and I can't replicate it. And he seems to be able to replicate it with anything. And I'm like, what is going on with your magical powers? I don't understand how you can create this this flavor profile. It was really tasty. So yeah, I mean, that and, and some of the other dishes he would make, he had this flap meat marinated steak that he would do. My grandma would do this. I don't really know what to call it, but it was basically white rice and milk in a bowl. And then you would put a little sugar on that, like uh-huh. a little brown sugar. And that was kind of like our our weird pudding dessert. Yep. So yeah, lots of different Filipino things go- at my grandparents' house. I remember growing up eating all the time. Nice. Well, is that, that's how it usually is with grandma and grandpa. I know that was yeah. the way it was for me. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Kevin. Yeah, thank you so much, Greg. How can our listeners get a hold of you? Sure. So everything is Epic Gardening. The, the main thing is the website. It's kind of the core of everything. 400, 500 in-depth gardening articles there. It's epicgardening.com. There's a podcast. So my podcast is a daily show. It's called Epic Gardening. We'll have guests on like Greg, or sometimes I'll just do a solo episode. It's like five to 10 minutes really quick. YouTube channel is longer form. So it'll be either be like a tutorial or a farm tour or a guide of some sort. And of course, that's called Epic Gardening. And then the Instagram as well is called Epic Gardening with, with daily tips And then the only other thing that's not called Epic Gardening is my book, which is Field Guide to Urban Gardening, How to Grow Plants No Matter Where You Live. And that one's just basically my beginner's guide to getting your green thumb off to a good start. So that's kind of where everyone can find me. Nice. And uh, we had you on episode 473 of the podcast, and you can find out all about the book there. Mm -hmm. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash epic challenge. We are your urban farming resource. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and everywhere podcasts are found. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. And if you would like to hear more from Kevin, you can find him on our 473rd podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash epic gardening. 
The Urban Farm Podcast is brought to you by our amazing Urban Farm team. Producer, Janice Norton. Editor, Ken Kingsborough. Associate, Katie Fiore. Social media, Renee Faree, and hosted by me, Farmer Greg. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please rate, review, and share it with your friends. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.